0: In April and May, we're still investigating different Jewish festivals that help us to remember and celebrate what God did for the Israelites in Bible times. And then that reminds us to remember and celebrate what God has done for us in our times, both corporately, all together, and as individuals as well. These are the ones we've looked at so far. We looked at the Sabbath. We looked at the Passover. And last week, Easter Sunday, we kind of slightly looked at the Passover as well. But these are the ones that are still to come. Now, looking at those, you might say, yeah, they don't mean a lot to me at the moment. The good thing is, give it to the end of May, and you'll know all about these, and it'll be marvellous because you'll know why it's good to remember and to celebrate what God has done. We know that already, but this is just helping us a little more. Of course, if these words don't mean a lot to you, you might have heard the kind of English translations that we use. And so all of these things are, Jewish, uh, are agricultural festivals, and in the springtime, it was things like the Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement... And then, later on, we'd have had, like Jill read for us today, the Feast of Booths, or in some translations, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's that Hebrew word, Sukkot, or Sukkah, it's, uh, that we use to translate that. This festival would come at the end of the olive and grape harvests. And many people in this country celebrate Harvest Festival, don't they? I know when I was growing up in the 70s and then in the 80s, I'd take a tin or, a, well, not a banana, some potatoes to, uh, to church, and I'd take them early on, uh, earlier than normal, and then some uh, person that I thought was old, but they were probably only in the 50s or the 60s at the time. Do you know what it's mean when, when you're a child? And it's like someone that was older than me would put them all in a very lovely arrangement, and it will be brilliant because you'd sort of say, oh, yeah, this is our harvest festival. We're thanking God for what he's done. And, of course, in the 19th century and the early 20th century, if people were living in more rural areas, it was definitely something that was important because harvest was something that you did and you worked long and hard to get everything in. It's quite different nowadays with shops that have most things most of the time. But this Jewish festival was like our harvest festival, but gone up several gears. Because it was the same sort of time of year, late September and late October, that sort of time. Because just like Passover, this Jewish festival is a movable date in our Western Gregorian calendar. And so, yeah, it comes between late September and late October. And it lasts for seven days and comes fairly soon after the Day of Atonement, which is a very different uh, festival. People would make temporary shelters and uh, generally live in them for a week, and then they 'd try and eat there and worship God there as well. And it really taught people about their dependence on God, on his good nature, on his kindness. It helped them to remember the time when the Israelites came out of Egypt. Passover. That was the actual coming out. But this festival is all about the coming out of Egypt and then the trudging through the wilderness for 40 years. And it just says, Lord, you kept us. You looked after us. Thank you so much. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. And it's one of the three great festivals of the Jewish calendar where Jewish people are expected to go to Jerusalem if they can. The other two Jewish festivals is the Passover and the Feast of Weeks. Now, we're going to watch a video in just a moment. But I make videos, you know that, with the colonel and he talks all very posh. I haven't made this video, and I want to make that very clear. In the script, there is the YouTube link, so you can find it, And it's nothing to do with me, but something I found that I thought would be really useful. So it lasts just about four minutes or so, so we're going to watch that just now.
1: I'm Evan Wolkenstein. You can call me Wolk. I call Sukkot the Jewish picnic holiday because you get to eat your meals outside and you build a hut to provide shade for you, your family, and your guests, and you do it for a week. Oh and you wave around a trident made out of plants and a weird lemon thing. Wait, stop, back up. How did we end up with a holiday like this? God tells Moses to tell the Israelites about the three awesome parties, aka harvest festivals, they will have once they reach the promised land. Passover, Shavuot, and the fall harvest, the festival of booths, Sukkot. Why? Because, as God tells Moses, the people of Israel shall dwell in booths. Now here, a booth doesn't mean a phone booth or a photo booth. It means a festival picnic hut. And we're supposed to live and eat in our festival picnic huts, our Sukkot. You're supposed to sleep in it, study Torah in it, hang out in it. In some places, you can sukkah hop enjoying food and l'chayens all night long. The sukkah is a symbol not only of the harvest when ancient crop harvesters spent nights in the field huts, but also of the clouds of glory God created to protect the Israelites wandering in the desert. So, we make our Sukkot today comfy, magical places. Some families hang gourds, strings of popcorn, paper chains, drawings, disco balls. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that ties them all together is tzach, the plant matter on top. Four out of five rabbis agree that tzach is the most beautiful word in the Hebrew language. And there's more. God said on the first day of this festival, take the fruit of good trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and party it up before God that's all the Torah has to say on the subject of the harvest holiday, but fortunately the Talmud explains what to do with these four species. The three green species we bind together into a green lightsaber. I mean, lulav. Meanwhile, the fruit of the good tree is identified as an etrog. An etrog has an amazing fresh citrus smell, but if you chop it open, there's like zero fruit inside. Don't bother trying to eat it. You'll just be pipped off. You hold the etrog to the hilt of the lulav. You shake it around and boom, you fulfill the mitzvah. Some mitzvot are so easy. The Kabbalist Arizal said we shake it in six directions to draw energy to the heart, each direction symbolizing a mystical sphere. Lulav, so cool, but what's the meaning? Well, like so many Jewish traditions, there are multiple answers. Some say the four species symbolize parts of the body. Others say different types of people. Me, I just enjoy the feeling, the sound, and the smell. Sukkot has a special synagogue service with extra prayers, songs, and a lulav parade. And no Jewish holiday would be complete without a festive meal. In this case, in a sukkah. It'd take about seven days just to explain the rules about building Sukkot, but that said, I've seen Sukkot on balconies, I've seen a skylight covered with schach, and a clever sukkah mobile, in Detroit there's a shipping crate sukkah, in Venice there's a boat sukkah, in Portland a sukkah on a... Bike trailer, of course, and others have gone way out of the box. But they all have schach on top. From palm fronds to pine needles, the schach has a deep, deep symbolism to it, and must be sparse enough to allow rain in and to let you see the stars. And yet it must be thick enough to provide more shade than sun. One way to understand it, God's light pours into this world, filling it with life but we can't look straight at the light. It's blinding. It takes clouds or schach to filter this light into a form we can appreciate, understand, and handle. Maybe the idea is that in our world, we can't see God, but we can see God's shadow in acts of kindness, in acts of justice, in each other's faces.
0: help us a little bit. Thank you, Alex, very much. That's great. So we're going to think about this festival and the title I've given to it today, which is going to come up in a moment. Right, I can just do that. There we go. Is this. Oh, go back a bit. Lovely. So we're thinking about the dependence on and abandonment to God. That's kind of where we're going to go with this Jewish festival, thinking about what it's all about. I'm going to read a definition of the Sukkot as well. And this is from the reformedjudaism.org website. It's only two or three paragraphs, and they're short. The reformedjudaism.org website describes Sukkot as one of the most joyful festivals on the Jewish calendar. Sukkot, a Hebrew word meaning booths or huts, refers to the Jewish festival of giving thanks for the autumn festival. Autumn harvest, rather. The holiday has also come to commemorate the 40 years of Jewish wandering in the desert after the giving of the Torah on the top of Mount Sinai. Also called... Zam Zimchatien, which, if you uh, can even understand that, it means season of our rejoicing. And Sukkot is the only festival associated with an explicit command to rejoice. Sukkot is celebrated five days after Yom Kippur on the 15th of the Hebrew month of Tishrei and is marked by several distinct traditions. One, which takes the commandment to dwell in booze literally, is to erect a sukkah, a small temporary booth or hut. Sukkot, in this case the plural, are commonly used during a seven-day festival for eating, entertaining, and even for sleeping. Our sukkots have open walls and open doors, and this is encouraging us to welcome as many people as we can. We invite family, friends, neighbours, and community to rejoice, eat, and share what we have with each other. So that's in a nutshell, what this festival is all about. It's remembering, thank you, Lord, that we can get harvest in the grapes and the olives, but thank you also, Lord, for looking after us and our forefathers as we went through the wilderness for 40 years. I thought we'd have a very much abridged version of the Israeli uh, history. And it's like this. I think this is, I've just done the Israelite history in a few lines. Moses is appointed. God acts on their behalf. They leave Egypt. God acts on their behalf. Moses is with God. The Ten Commandments, another Lord. God acts on their behalf. Israelites sin. God acts on their behalf. Israelites sin again. God still acts on their behalf. Israelites enter Promised Land. God acts on their behalf. To get the common thread, God acts on their behalf. And this is what we're remembering, just like the Israelites are remembering. God acts on our behalf. For many years in the distant past, I didn't really think about what the Israelites did in their 40 years of wandering around the desert. There was the big picture like this, and that's, this is what I'd hear different preachers speaking on. Just all they uh, had the Ten Commandments, there was a golden calf, they sort of had manna, they were all la, 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 la. You've read about it in the Bible as well. But you know, it was 40 years of normal life. They had to eat, they had to drink, they had to sleep, as well as worship. And we hear a lot about the laws for worship in the Bible. And the important thing is, even in their normal, everyday life, of eating, drinking, and sleeping, God still acted on their behalf. How did they cook? We know perhaps what they had, but how did they cook it? How did they go to the toilet? This festival reminds us that because of the booths that they use nowadays and over the past few centuries, they were using booths to sleep in with palm branches and other leafy things that they could find We saw some of those different things in the desert, in in the video rather, as to what they did nowadays or what they do in different countries. Years ago, I went camping quite a few times. Years ago, notice that. Most of the time, I'd go to a campsite with whoever I was going with and we'd have toilets and showers and that would be that. And I'd come home thinking... I'm glad that's over, because it wasn't such a, a good thing. I didn't really, really enjoy it. But there was this one occasion when it was a long weekend that I went with another person, and we went camping in Snowdonia. In Snowdonia. Not at any campsites, but on the mountains and stuff like that for a long weekend. And so every day, we'd pitch our tent somewhere, then we'd walk with the tent and a rucksack and everything and all the supplies and the cooking utensils and all of that on our backs uh walk for like 10 or 15 miles and then set up camp somewhere else again on a mountain just roughly no one else near us just just roughly and i said it was early winter there was snow on the ground so yay that was cheerful heavy weight on your back nowhere to have a shower no really where to go to the toilet. You had to have a spade, if you know what I mean. And it was just like exhilarating. But, but it was. Some of the time it was exhilarating. But some of the time it was like, oh, this is really hard work. And I remember it quite well, how much hard work it was. That reminds me of the Israelites. Having to take their tent up, their booth, dismantle it Somehow put it on a donkey or carry it or it was on a cart. Off they went to their next place, however it would be, following the, the fire, following the cloud that God was telling them uh, to guide them with. And there was a quarter of a million people maybe. And some people think it might have been as many as two and a half million Israelites. You, I don't know how many, but sort of somewhere like that. All of these people dismantling their booths. I've done a tent each time because that's the best I could find on the internet. But... They were dismantling every day, walking along. Oh, there's God guiding us there. They'd keep on walking and then they'd camp the next night or they might stay in the same place for a month or for a week, however long it might be. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they tell us about what was happening at this time. Can you think about all the drudgery of for 40 years Camping. I can tell you're gobsmacked by it all. You're just thinking, no, I can't think of that. Because it's, I I had a long weekend just going back to that. It was awful. It was exhilarating. That's, That's the word I'm still using. It was exhilarating. But 40 years, God looked after the Israelites in practical ways. They had food. They had drink. They had somewhere to shelter then God was leading them. God was good. And yet it didn't need to be. Because the Israelites had a big problem. They were self-dependent. They wanted to do things their own way. Some of them even wanted to go back to Egypt, you might remember. And some wanted to not think Yahweh had done all this for them, but they wanted to make a calf, they wanted to do their own thing. God supplies another solution. And it was his love and his faithfulness that let the Israelites wander around for 40 years. Much longer than they needed to. Remember they could have, if they would just left Egypt and gone to the promised land, it would have been about 11 days. But God was still shown his love and his faithfulness despite the big problem the Israelites had of self-dependence. I've read it already, but I'm going to read it again. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. This is the Revised Standard Version. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And I know for certain that those verses are just as true today in the 21st century as they have been in all the centuries that have preceding us. It's a definite truth that as we meditate on these verses, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to the end. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. So the joy of the Lord can give us strength for that day. No matter what we're going to face. Because I know some of us face easy things. And then a few days later, we face hard things. All of us. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In the mid-1980s, I bought a cassette tape. Because in the mid-1980s, I bought hundreds of cassette tapes. This is what it was called. Only Visiting This Planet. Do you remember that album? Did you hear anyone buy it? This is one of the best albums ever. It was by Larry Norman, and it came out in 1972. So I bought it about 10 years after it had come out. But it remo- there were some really good songs on it. And Cliff Richard. Uh-huh. He sort of took some of the songs like Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music. It was Larry Norman who'd had it on this album and some other great songs that if you heard it, you'd say, Oh, yeah, I've heard of that song before. We're only visitors, like the album says, only visiting this planet. We're only visiting Earth. None of us are at our final destination at the moment. Do you consider yourself to be a nomad or a journeyer? You know, people who are nomads don't have many personal items. They have the essentials. And just like the Israelites, it's all being able to take it up, put it in a bag or in a cart and get off to the next place. Maybe you don't think you're a nomad or a journeyer. Perhaps you might think you're an adventurer, a trekker, a wanderer. Maybe that might tick your box a little bit more. If you don't think that's true, I've got one more category that hopefully you're going to think this is what I am. We're all pilgrims. We're on a journey with God. We haven't reached our final destination just yet. We're On a pilgrimage, knowing God, following him, and serving other people. The culture around us tells us to buy lots of material things. It doesn't matter if you go into debt, so the culture says, just buy lots of stuff. And I'm just going to say something that annoys me. On some websites, even Christian ones, it says, grab it while you can. And that verb, grab, really gets on my nerves. Because I don't want to grab anything. I'm very content with how I live. I'm very content with who I live with. I don't need to grab it while I can. Just get lost, I think. But but I didn't say that out loud, did I? The thing is, the culture says, get, get, get. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus says, come to me. God is interested in what we're doing on a Sunday morning. He's pleased that we're here. But he's also interested in what you do Monday afternoon and Tuesday night and first thing Wednesday morning. God loves us throughout the week. When Paul the Apostle wrote to the uh, church in Rome, he said this. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes, so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in his plan and purpose for you. That's Romans 12, verse 2 from the Amplified Bible. If I read it from the message, verses 1 and 2, it's a little bit different. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Read, readily recognise what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Isn't that wonderful that Paul the Apostle encourages to do that? It's not taking the material things and have all kinds of stuff in your home. It's saying, Lord, I want to mature in you. I want to quickly respond to what you want me to say. We say this verse quite a lot. Well, I I think about it regularly, at least once or twice a week. And again, it's from the message. You'll have heard of it, I'm sure, from Matthew 11. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion, not with lots of baggage and things to carry that I do in my normal life. But I want to have a temporary booth that I can just move about. And God says, come here today. This is the way to be here. I don't want to carry the baggage of unforgiveness, of hurt, of suffering, of that, that sound, you know. I don't want to carry that anymore. Because I want to be better at walking with God. I want to live freely and lightly, as we talked about. God allows us frail and sinful human beings to come to him and to call him Father. Isn't that a tremendous privilege that we have, that we have that relationship With God. And what did Jesus say in the message there? He says, Watch God, learn from Him, keep company from Him. And this is not just from a distance, I've put at the bottom. We can get up close and personal with God. He invites us to come to Him. I was thinking about two people in the New Testament this week who got close to Jesus. And he transformed their life. One of them was Bartimaeus, or Bartimaeus, if you want to call him that. And this is in John, uh, Mark chapter 10. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And thrown off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All the people around were saying, shut up, don't don't disturb this teacher, he's busy. But what did Bartimaeus do instead? He didn't shut up. In a way, he had no shame. It was so important. He'd come to the end of all he could do himself. His only hope was Jesus. And there was Jesus right in front of him. So when other people said, Shh, don't do that. He said, Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Lord, Jesus, I need you. Help me. That's what Bartimaeus did. Do you remember the lady with the issue of blood? We read about her in Luke chapter 8. We're only talking about her perhaps in February or January. She shouldn't have been in the crowd because she had this uh, illness whereby she was sort of religiously unclean and she shouldn't have been near people. And she could have just stayed away from the crowd and perhaps the crowd and Jesus are over there. But she'd come to the end of what she could do. She saw Jesus and something in her sort of said, there's Jesus. He can change your life. And so she got her elbows out. It must have been because there was a throng of people around him. She went in and touched the hem of his garment. She didn't care about religion and what other people would say about her and to her. She needed Jesus. And so she travelled lightly. And that's the encouragement for all of us. We can travel lightly as well. We don't need to carry things from the past. But we can say, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want to know you. Both of these people, the woman with the issue of blood and Bartimaeus, the blind man, they had no answers they had left. They had no plans left. They were dependent on Jesus. Jesus. They abandoned their own good ideas and their social standing and they stepped out of their normality and they stepped into the arms of Jesus, into the presence of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? And we too can step into the wonderful presence of Jesus every day. We can abandon what we're thinking for the future and become dependent on God. I so often think what John the Baptist said. He must increase and increase. I must decrease and decrease. I put on that slide that God allows us. But then I got thinking, it's so much bigger and more important than that. Because God doesn't just allow us to come to him in a begrudging manner. God isn't resentful of us when when we come into his presence. He's not looking at his watch and thinking, I've got so much better things to do than listen to these people from England, or from Chile, or from Switzerland, or from Italy, or from wherever you might be from, from Wales. God isn't looking at his watch. God has got his arms open. So that as we come into his presence, he's saying, oh, I'm so glad you've joined me. I'm so glad you're here. Why don't you just sit quietly and listen to me? I want to sing to you. I want to show you my love. I want to give you something that will make you, that will help you through the day. So he doesn't begrudge us coming to him but he actively invites us to come to him. John 7, 37. On the last day, the climax of the holidays, Jesus shouted to the crowds, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's John seven thirty seven. And in a way, using this scripture means we've come full circle. Because it talks about the holidays. And if you look earlier in the chapter, John 7, verse 2, it tells us that particular holiday was the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus was in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles with all the other Jews there. On the last day, remember, on the last day, on the last day of that feast, in Jerusalem, the high priest would lead a procession out of the temple. And they'll all be singing sort of psalms uh, and things. I'll let you imagine what that's like, because I'm not going to do that. But what they do, they do a procession. And they go to the pool of Siloam. And at the, pipe, the pool of Siloam, the high priest would be really lovely dressed. You can imagine it. It's sort of... Uh, Films and everything you see, don't you? With them well-dressed. He'd get a picture, uh, P-I-T-C-H-E-R, rather than a picture, uh, a picture on, and put it into the pool and he'd get some water out of the pool They'd all possess back to the temple and then he'd read a psalm and then he'd throw it on the ground because that's celebrating that when the Israelites were in the desert, in the wilderness, Moses hit the rock And water gushed out. So part of the ceremony that the Jews did all that time ago in the temple in Jerusalem was the high priest getting a pitcher of water and then throwing it down on a temple. What did Jesus say? He knew what the high priest was doing that day. He knew he was going to throw water on the ground. But Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink the water was symbolic but Jesus said remember to the Samaritan woman in in John chapter 4 I am the living water drinking water naturally we need some more half an hour later or an hour later but Jesus living water does something inside of us forever we're changed aren't we as we come into God's presence jesus had something much better than normal water jesus had the living water in this uh, version in the living bible it says jesus shouted to the crowds he wanted to get their attention you're saying this is so important in some other versions it says jesus stood and said to the crowds and that again is another way of saying he was getting people's attention Because in those times, the rabbis, the teachers, wouldn't stand like we're doing now. But they'd be, oh, I'm going down. I'm sure I'll get up. They'd be sitting down. And so teachers would sit down with everyone and just be chatting about the law. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus stood. Jesus shouted. Because what he was saying, come to me and drink, was vital, was important. Even today, we can say, Lord, thank you for your living water. Lord, help me to to live lightly, not to carry baggage, but to, just like the Israelites, as they wandered round the desert for 40 years, help me, Lord, to be dependent on you. Help me, Lord, to abandon what I've got for you. Our first choice, I think, from my own perspective is never to even go to a desert, let alone wander around it for 40 years. But Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus doesn't just want to meet us on a Sunday morning when we've got a smile on and our best clothes on. Jesus meets us in the middle of the night when we're in despair. And he still says, come to me. Let me ha- give you my living water. Let me make a difference in your life. And all we need to do is grasp his hand and say, Lord, whatever speed you go at, wherever you go, I want to walk at your pace and put my trust in you. The Israelites maybe didn't do it all the time. We know that. And maybe for us, there'll be some days when we don't put our trust in God, but in our own ways, our own ideas. But still, God invites us, puts his both arms out and say, come, if you're thirsty, come to me, come and drink. I love you. I want to make a difference in your life. So we're going to pray and then we'll sort of respond to that in a few songs and then maybe in prayer as well. So, Lord, we thank you that we are pilgrims. Thank you that, Lord, we're not traveling on our own. We're traveling with you. Lord, as we come and think about our life for this coming week, Lord, help us to travel lightly, putting things away that don't matter, concentrating on you, seeking you first, and making you honoured and glorified by what I say and do, Lord.